Welcome again to the Comic Book Historians Podcast with Alex Grant and Jim Thompson. Today, we continue the second half of our interview with the illustrious Joe Staten. 1976 or so, you finally got some work at, at DC. Specifically, Paul Levitz brought you in to do some inking on Karate Kid over Rick Estrada's pencils. Is that right? That's right. And it's just like everything else. I call out of the blue from Paul. It's amazing to think how young he must have been at those days. Mm-hmm. And, and he wanted to know if I'd like to do some work for DC. I was, you know, a little stifled at, at Marvel, I thought at the time, which was just getting mostly inking. So I was, you know, I guess willing to do some finishes for DC. DC actually relatively quickly let you start doing pencils as well. And they were on not the main comics, but on things that were coming back or they were trying to give them another chance. When you started doing pencils, Joe, it seemed like you were being given assignments that were like fan favorites, but not necessarily the big heroes. You were doing Metal Men, and then you got to revitalize Doom Patrol over in, in Showcase and then in its own title, right? Right. And a lot a lot of that, I was doing my own pencils and, and my own inks, so which was a real attraction at the time because that's what I'd been doing at Charlton. Were those comics that you had followed when you were younger, did you have any attachment to those characters? Well, I I definitely had an attachment to the Metal Men because I was a big fan of Andrew and Esposito. I I loved what they did. I really didn't know much about the Doom Patrol. That was just because Paul Kupperberg and I were kind of in the office with Paul Levitz one day, and he says, we're doing the Doom Patrol, you want to do that? And I kind of said, what's that? And we did it. It it was just kind of lucid those days. If you were in the office, you wound up doing something. And then at some point, you were moved up to bigger heroes. You did Superboy, but you also did Wonder Woman, and this is in the late 70s, and you got to do Green Lantern, which must have been exciting for you because of the Gil Kane connection. All right, and I was a big Green Lantern fan for ever since Gil, since uh, Green Lantern had come back from on Showcase. So I'd been kind of putting my name in for Green Lantern whenever there would be a chance. Eventually, uh, Jack Harris was the editor, and Jack and I were buddies, and he he put me in to take over Green Lantern. And that run you were doing with Roy Thomas some and Marv Wolfman some. Is that is that correct? No, never never with Roy. Um, oh, he got I, some credits for it, but it's story credits, I guess. Oh, okay. I, I didn't know that, or I lost it. <laughs> but I started with, at the very end of Denny O'Neill's run, I, I did the story where Green Lantern and Green Arrow broke up. They weren't traveling buddies anymore. And then after that, it was I had a run with, with Marv Wolfman. That that was my, my first time out on Green Lantern. Uh-huh. Now, was this was this after Mike Grell had done? He'd been doing some Green Lantern, Green Arrow. Was that before you? Yeah, Grell was before me, and uh, Alex Saviak had been right. uh, immediately before me, and Alex went off to draw Spider-Man. And this was a kind of a hit. People liked your Green Lantern quite a bit, didn't they? Yeah, actually, actually, my Green Lantern had a, a good rece- good reception. I- still, still does. People, people seem to like it. It gets reprinted a lot. 
Now, was Guy Gardner brought in during that run, or was he brought in during the Steve Englehart run with you that was done later? That is certainly with Steve, Steve Englehart. Guy had been pretty much written out of the continuities, and Dick Giordano apparently specifically asked Steve to reimagine Guy to do something that the character wouldn't be lost. Steve brought in a completely rethought version of, of Guy. And it, it took it took comics by storm. People loved that character at that point. And you were strongly identified with that character, even to the point of doing limited series and prestige format things and, and other work involving Guy, right? I figure Guy is one of my characters. Yeah, I'm, I'm always pleased to, to be identified with him. He's not a role model, but he's, he's interesting. So talking about your characters, let's talk about when you, you were also given the Justice Society characters that had been revitalized with Wally Wood and All-Star. And then from that, you played a hand in making, you did the Power Girl series for Showcase, uh, right. the first time she was was leading in, in a story. And you also, you were totally part of the creation of The Huntress, correct? Correct. I'm co-creator on two different versions of The Huntress. So, yeah. So talk about that and your love for the Justice Society, because I know that was that was at that time, that was one of your things that you were really enjoying doing. Yeah, I, I really like the whole Justice Society thing. And it, it worked that I was coming in following Wally Wood because it gave the Earth 2 projects look a little different from the regular DC universe. And that's that's what I was trying to keep going Fortunately, DC had been doing a lot of the 100-page reprint books and for yeah. the last, I don't know, few years. And I'd really gotten interested in all the characters from the 40s who were then being Earth 2, especially like, you know, The Flash and Wildcat and those guys. So, mm -hmm. yeah, it, it, it really fit me. I, I tell people I'm always most at home on Earth 2. Oh, that's awesome. Well, you drew one of my favorite Earth 2 stories ever done which was brave and bold 197 that alan brenner oh, wrote yeah. with batman and, and catwoman i'm skipping ahead to that that's in 1983 but i love that story so much when you saw that script did you realize wow this is a really really good piece i did not realize just how good it was until after it was done i i was very impressed with how it all turned out and we, George Freeman had, you know, just really great inking and Alan, oh, yeah. and Alan Brunner, you know, I talk about how Nick Cuddy had like a, a feeling for the humanity of his characters and Alan Brunner, that's his strength. He could take a superhero characters and it was like, they were real people, you know, they had feelings, they had relationships. And I think this is, you know, maybe one of the very best of, of that sort of, of story. I was really pleased with them. I'm very proud of it. Yeah, it holds up really, really well. It's one of my favorites. And and your work was great in it. If you didn't realize, some subconsciously you must have, because you really upped the game. It's a beautifully illustrated piece. Well, thank you. And it was that whole trying to get the, the 40s look, the Earth 2 look. And I, I had had a chance with All-Star to kind of develop how I handle those characters. And it just kind of all came together there. How much work did you do on Legion of Superheroes? You did at least a short run on that as well. Did you enjoy that at all? I never really got a good grip on the Legion. It wasn't a series that I had followed. So I was kind of 
trying to figure out who everybody was and what all these costumes were. I, I never gave the, the Legion a good run. I didn't get into the Legion the way I should have. There are stories in there that I, I think worked well, and I always liked the character of Monel and Paul Levitz's stories about Princess Projectra and Karate Kid. And so there were some good stories there, but I, I never quite gave it the interest I should have. One of these days in a different reality, I'll go back and, you know, Paul and I will do a nice Legion story. I remember your block. I thought, well, that's a good block. I, I like that. But it wasn't your Justice Society, that's for sure. There was a passion there that you could see. So, Joe, tell us first how you got hooked up with First Comics. And well, what, what year was that? Was that 81 or uh, what, what exact year was that? Oh, golly. Asking me dates is never good, but I think uh-huh. it was 1980. I think Straight up 1980. Okay. So how did that, how did that connection happen? Well, Mike Gold had been Mike brought Gold. As PR guy, information guy at, at DC, he out from Chicago had connections with theater uh, groups out there. And one thing led to another for those connections to be putting together a new comics company in in Chicago. I was, you know, getting to feeling a little stifled at DC at that point, you know. Mm-hmm. And, and Mike asked me, would I like to come off out to Chicago and be art director and do a book for a new company out there? Mm-hmm. And it was the time when, you know, there were Eclipse Comics and, yeah. I don't know, various smaller publishers were starting. Right those days yeah because because of the direct market was starting to take hold and there are a lot of uh, independent comics companies and then a lot of comic stores everywhere so it was a it was a boom economically so so then mike gold set you up with and you became art director at first comics so what did that entail being art director there a little bit of everything a lot of dealing with the printers trying to keep various freelancers online and Things with the printers, like I was, we, we were still printing at, at Sparta in Illinois. I would fly into St. Louis and rent a car and go out into a, a cornfield where there was this many acres of a building where all the printing was done. And yeah. It was an adventure. So you know, just figuring out how everything in comics was done. There was a point at first where I think I could honestly say, I was the only person who could do every step in the production of a comic book, from generating an idea to helping unload the trucks on out to the store, all of which I'd done. I'm now a master of many obsolete technologies. So. Oh, that's cool. Yeah, It's funny that you mentioned that, because we had Eric Larson on the show also, and you guys were both at that LA Comic Con. What's interesting is he says the same thing. Mike Gold hooked him up with a lot of work. And that he also can kind of from beginning to end put a comic together. So that's that's a fascinating connection that you guys have. You also had E-Man revived at first comic. How did that get set up there? Eventually, all the people signed up to do books for first were generating their own new characters. And I was working on a new character, kind of a Midwestern superhero. Mm-hmm. And Mike Gold says, why are you trying to do this? We already have a pre-sold character, so mm-hmm. why don't we just do E-Man? Mm-hmm. So it was actually, Mike Gold walked into my office one day and says, oh, let's do that. Yeah. So, so then they got to work getting the rights from Charlton and, and doing a lot of copyright work, and so that's why we did E-Man. Did you 
as a creator of Eman or co-creator of Eman, were there any royalty issues that had to be worked out during any of this? How did that exactly work? First comics line, there was a copyright lawyer in Chicago by the name of George Bullwinkle, who somehow got all the rights to E-Man straightened out. The deal was that First would front paying for E-Man for all the expense to get everything from Charlton. But my royalties from E-Man would go to cover what they paid. Mm. So we had that deal. Like who then, after all that, who, who owns E-Man at this point? Well, it's kind of a, a thing that is split between me and a guy named Ken Levin, who's the lawyer who was involved at First uh, Comics. So Nick and I could keep on doing new E-Man material, mm-hmm. but con- uh, controls all the media rights to E-Man. So if there's ever a E-Man movie, it'll have to be dealt with by Ken. Oh, that's cool. Okay. It's kind of cool knowing about that stuff. So then it ran for about 25 issues. It went from 83 to 85, as far as cover dates and cover year. And then Martin Pascal wrote most of the first eight or so issues. And how did you feel he was as a writer on the character compared to Nick? Marty is another of my buddies, but he and Nick had a different approach, had a more explicitly satirical take, and Nick didn't deliberately parody things as much. So it was a different take. Really, even is certainly at home mostly when, when Nick is doing or Right. Yeah. Right. That makes sense. Yeah. Now, you also wrote for the character a little bit as well before Nick started writing him, right? Again. So tell us about writing E-Man. Well, actually, I'm credited in several issues of E-Man, but the process there was I would go into the office with three or four ideas. Whoever was in the office that day, like Rick Oliver, the assistant editor, was there and and, and Bruce Patterson and uh, I don't know, various. We kind of sit around and figure out an idea we could do the next issue. And I would draw something up. And actually, Hillary, there she is again, would do a lot of the dialogue. Uh-huh. So it was just kind of everything was put under under my name because I was identified there. With, oh, uh, that's cool. So she did a lot of the actual scripting of that. She did. Yeah. Yeah. She's definitely has a lot of trades that she's she, able to kind of make things happen. Yeah. She's very clever. Yes. Yeah. That's, that's really great. Yeah. I had that impression when I met both of you together that she's kind of like, you know, really organizing a lot of things at the same time. Okay. So you were art director at First Comics from 80 to 83, but you kept doing E Man even past that, right? Because those dates are from 83 to 85. Is that correct? That's right. Yeah. Yeah, um, so so a lot of those issues were while you were not the art director, right? Right. But at that point, Nick had come back and was available to be writing the scripts again. Mm-hmm. And certainly that was something I wanted to be around for. I, I kind of burned out on staff at first, being a full-time art director and a full-time artist and uh-huh. uh, several other things at the same time. Kind of got to be a little bit too much. So you were excited at that point to just go back to be, doing art again? Right. Yeah. Yeah. You were ready to go back to that. So now were you interacting with guys like Mike Grell, Chaikin, Starlin around this time? Yeah. Well, I certainly was. I, I was dealing with all those guys there because they were doing the books and I'd have right. to talk to them if, if something needed adjusting or like, oh, Howard, you've forgotten to draw flags hip over here. Would you? <laughs> <laughs> I really enjoyed working with Howard. Howard's my hero. So, oh, uh, that's awesome. Yeah. So 
and we we've had him on this show. Fun guy to talk to. And that's interesting that you both have the Gil Kane lineage. So when you were seeing pages from him with his American flag, which I think is highly critically regarded as being in a similar status as the Frank Miller Batman and Alan Moore Watchmen, that he kind of brought that serious storytelling in the 80s. Did you feel like you and Howard had kind of a more of a special bond than maybe with some of the other people you'd talk to? Yeah, I think so. Certainly with the Gil Kane background and you know just the approach. You know, Howard came out and talked to us at, at first. We had real nice meetings with Howard and Mike Gold and you know, the whole crew when Howard was talking about what he was going to be doing with Flag. I think that the name American Flag came out of one of those meetings. So. Mm-hmm. Oh, really? How fun. Yeah, those were great. great comics, Joe. Sable, Dreadstar, those were all really fun to read. How did it go bad? Basically, the company was underfunded, and we never were able to sell the advertising we hoped to to cover the difference. And basically, we were just underfunded and couldn't keep going. So now, you also did a story with Marty Pascal for Eclipse's Destroyer Duck 1 called Gimme My Check. (laughs) Scott Shaw did the inks. I remember I made a post about this, and there have been different renditions of this Alex Toth, Julia Schwartz story of Alex not getting his check, throwing him out a window or threatening to, then he got fired. Now, looking back on that artwork, that's interesting in that the person that looks like, that is, that I think represents Toth, kind of looks like Toth. He's got the Pierre hat too, which is kind of funny because there's that artist personality that Toth has. Kind of that cap. Yeah. 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 That kind of difficult artist. But then there is the Schwartz character, which actually looks more like Robert Kaniger. It was my understanding it was Kaniger. I see. So when you did it, you thought it was actually Kaniger in that story. Is that right? That's the story I was told. I got you. That's why you drew him like Kaniger, because you actually thought it was Kaniger. Okay, that's cool. Yeah, because I made a post about that a couple years back. And I think that that whole concept of an editor not paying the artist, the artist throwing him out the window. I feel like even when Jim and I have interviewed some people, they would say, oh, yeah, I think, and it was completely different editors and artists saying, oh, I think that artist threw this editor out the window when it probably didn't happen, but it's such a piece of the folklore of this comics history. Why does it resonate so much with a, with a lot of people, that satire, that relation between artist and editor? It's one of those stories, if it didn't happen, it should have. Yeah. <laughs> the, the people with the body need to be thrown out windows occasionally. <laughs> That's awesome. Now, um, before I go to the next section, Jim, did you want to uh, finish up DC? Yeah, I do want to finish up DC. Let's talk about a, a few things in terms of that. You did the Millennium series, and then New Guardians came from that. What was it like doing that? Because that was somewhat controversial, wasn't it? Yeah, I mean, I don't think I was involved in the controversy just in getting it done but in terms of getting the book done weekly or whatever it was and the book was being rewritten daily and i was not originally assigned to do the book i just kind of was thrown into it and steve englehart had a lot of political material he wanted to get into the book that dc at the last minute wouldn't allow him to so it was amazing that the book got done at all i got it in Speaking of Englehart, let's talk about his run on Green Lantern. What was he like to work with? Did you enjoy working on Englehart scripts? I did very much. I think I've said a couple of times that Steve 
was not the best writer I ever worked with, but he was definitely the most fun. I never knew where he was going. The stories would just go off in a whole different direction than I was expecting. If you give me a Marv Wolfman Green Lantern script, it's going to be very well written. No problem writing. But after the first couple of pages, I know how it's going to end. But with uh, Steve, I never knew. I, I never knew where he was going, what was going to be in the next issue at all, because he was always coming. He kind of had more ideas going on than he could get organized like any rational reason. So it was just, it was fun trying to keep up with what he was doing. So it was kind of a surprise when you would turn a page and he had aged Arisa to being a fully grown woman instead of a girl, and they started dating all of a sudden. That that had to be a shocker, wasn't it? That was a complete surprise to me. Yes. Right. <laughs> Did you think at all, I don't know about this one? <laughs> I may have had a, a few hesitations, but I... <laughs> was having so much fun just trying to keep up with them that it's, it's not like I would say, oh, maybe we should stop and think about this. No, that, that never occurred to me. I, I'm not going to claim that I tried to rein him in or anything. I just tried to keep up. And with the Guardians, several of those characters were, were new characters. And were you instrumental in their, in their concepts and their creation with Englehart? Uh, characters like Chip, obviously, and Arisa, although I think she'd been around a little bit was the Mike Barr character from a miniseries from a few yeah. years. Yeah. I, you know, obviously designed a lot of the characters, but I, I don't think I had, you know, real input on what the thinking was. Did you design Kilowog? I did, yeah. He's got to be one of the most beloved ones you, you draw, the concept of it. You must get a lot of feedback on Kilowog, don't you? Yeah, well, Kilowog is one of those that, that everybody loves. I'm more likely to have people ask for drawings and kilowogs and shows than, than hardly anything else. Oh, that's cool. That makes sense to me, because as soon as he, I saw him on the page, it's like, well, you just love him. And and Inglehart knew how to write him, and, you know, the catchphrases with a poser and everything. He was just a perfect character. I think so. And, you know, Steve just gave me a very general outlaw, and so this is, it's a big guy, so we got a big and lovable, so we go with that. And that was a pretty long run you did with Englehart on Green Lantern, wasn't it? Yeah, I think it was. You later did a Batman Superman Adventures book that you, you got an Eisner for, correct? Right, yeah. I really like working in that animated style. I, I never had a run on any of the animated books, but I had a lot of one-shots and villains, Batman Adventures. Yeah, a lot, a lot of that. I, I really like that style. It, it worked very well in that Superman Batman. Were you using Bruce, Tim, Paul Denny model, or did you harken back to Alex Toth as well? Mostly the, the current Bruce, Tim look. But I'm, I'm always trying to go back to Alex Toth whenever possible. You know, So I, I, I really like drawing that style. Were there any other books or projects you did at DC during your, your run there that you really enjoyed doing? I know you did a pretty long run on Superboy. You did a, a run on Wonder Woman at some point. Did you use the Ross Andrew model when you were doing Wonder Woman? I think not. I probably should have. I think Ross's style on, on Wonder Woman wasn't really what they were going for by that time. I, I guess I was shooting more for a Dick Giordano look on, on Wonder Woman. I was kind of an in-between style for Wonder Woman. She wasn't the Andrew. She wasn't George Perez. I was just kind of in there keeping her going. You talk about things that I'd like to mention. I did a one-shot Citizen Wayne. Who wrote that? 
Mark Waite, I think. I remember that. I was an alternate reality, Elseworlds Batman. And I had an amazing inking job from Horacio Atolini in, in Argentina. It was like a pulp magazine all the way through. And I'm, I'm really proud of that book. And there was a book about attempting to ban landmines, Suffer the Children, I think was the title. That was written by Denny O'Neill and Bilson Kevichink did beautiful inking. Those are two books. It's funny, I'm I, not really that identified with a run on Batman. I've done standalone Batman material yeah. that I think you know, probably some of my best. What about Plastic Man? That was in Adventure Comics. Was, it, was that intimidating to try to do, follow Jack Cole in, in anything? Well, Jack Cole is one of those guys I can't help but follow. It's like I can't help but draw in an animated style. I can't help but draw like Jack Cole as much as I, I fight it. I love doing the Jack Cole stuff. And speaking of working with Marty Pascoe, Marty had some of the goofiest villains for Plastic Man. My favorite was Brickface. There used to be an ad on TV all the time for some kind of Adobe process where you could have things stuck to the outside of your house and they would draw bricks on it. And that was Brickface. And that's where that villain came from. So those were cool. I, I like doing that. That was a fun series. Uh, and this is not DC, but I, we don't have it anywhere else. I want to mention that you were actually inking ElfQuest at one point, too, for the pennies, correct? I inked a miniseries, Siege at Blue Mountain. When was that? Oh, golly. When was that? Maybe in the 90s? I don't know. Somewhere in there. I've, I've lost track. And but, were you bringing a Wally Wood flavor to it, or what were you doing with it? Well, I was trying to be faithful to Wendy, and uh, Wally Wood looked really did seem to work well with Hollywood's blacks and Wendy's cartoon characters and everything in cartoon but solid like they were real so that was Wendy that was that was Hollywood that was me I think it worked out pretty well you enjoyed that project too I did I enjoyed it a lot I like that a lot it was a good matchup of people so let me ask you a question about DC editorial during the fairly long period you were there. Did you have relationships with Levitz? Obviously, he brought you on board when he was very junior there, but rose to the top. What were your relationships with the publisher and, and people in charge? Well, obviously with Paul Levitz, and he's you know he's still a good buddy. We we one of those things that lasts forever. And but when I came in, Carmine was still there. I guess Paul had started, but mostly with Carmine. Julie Schwartz took my samples into Carmine, and Carmine says, "Oh, I don't need to see these. I know what Wally Wood can do." So I took that as a compliment. So oh, cool. Yeah, I, I never really had any direct dealings with Jeanette. I'd, I'd <laughs> see her occasionally and say hello. And I guess Dick Giordano was the highest. Uh, other than Paul, I would deal with Dick and, you know, just the regular editors then. Did you and Dick have any, like, was there like a mutually acknowledged Charlton connection, even though you guys are there at different times? Actually, I don't think so. I never quite. I mean, most everybody clicked very well with Dick, but I, I never quite was on the same wavelength. He always mm -hmm. thought, I guess he thought my stuff was too Charlton-y, a little too goofy for what he was looking for. But we, oh, okay. you know, we worked fine, but I, I don't think we ever saw exactly what we were, were doing. Right. And how about uh, Joe Orlando or Saul Harrison? Any contact with those guys? Well, Saul was still around. He didn't, he, he left not too much after I started and Saul... I'm I'm told Saul didn't actually think I should be working, but I never oh. knew 
at that uh, person. Oh, no. Okay. <laughs> but I managed to survive Saul. And Joe Orlando was one of those guys who was one of my partisans. And Joe was a little bit like Archie. He would get me into things that he would think I, I should be doing. Oh, that's awesome. Yeah. So at one point, Joe had me do a, a job for, for MAD, you know. And, and uh-huh. The Power Girl book was, I think that was with Joe. And we... Huntress, Joe worked on design with us. So, yeah, Joe and I were buddies. Well, Gaspar lettered over you quite a bit. Did you have any contact with him? Did you like his lettering? Do you have a tendency to like one person's lettering more than another's? I don't, I don't think I've ever met Gaspar, but I certainly really liked his, his lettering a lot. And mm-hmm. at first, I always loved Ken Brusenak's lettering. He lettered American Flag and did yeah. all his, his lettering was amazing part of the art. So mm-hmm. lettering is important. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. Now, before we get to Dick Tracy, you did some other crime strips prior to that assignment. In the early 90s, you did Mickey Spillane's Mike Danger Sunday strip with Max Allen Collins. What was that like? It was fun. Chris Mills was an editor at, what was that, Techno? And they were putting it together. It was as close to Dick Tracy as I thought I was ever going to get. Are you a fan of, of Mickey Spillane? Not specifically. I'm more of a fan of Raymond Chandler. And yes, there you go. me too. Yeah. More yeah. Uh, Dashiell Hammett, more sophisticated versions of, of the detectives. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. Steranko, we had him on the show. He's a big fan of chandler which obviously we know that because he did a chandler graphic novel and actually he told me that he stood in front of raymond chandler's house and took a picture in front of his house he was that big of a fan which is a it was like take a picture ma'am in front of raymond chandler's house so that's a fun story okay so those are your favorite crime writers did you ever look at dashiell hammett and alex raymond's secret agent x9 did you ever check those out oh yeah yeah i love that stuff okay do you enjoy crime comics in general yeah, I actually, given my druthers, I, I think I would do crime comics rather than anything else. Rather than anything else, yeah, because you were a sci-fi fan just in general, but and then you've done quite a bit of superhero stuff. It seems like you have a lot of fun with the crime with the crime comics. I do. Yeah, I go back to Mister District Attorney, so I you know like the crime stuff. That's cool. Does that involve like crime TV shows and things like that too? Yeah. Yeah. Oh, that's awesome. So then now this is a funny, the, the most successful crime solver character of all time. You also did Scooby-Doo. Is that, <laughs> and that's funny. So you did about a hundred issues of Scooby-Doo uh, starting in 2000. How did that, how did that come about? I had been doing, uh, what was I doing before that? I guess Guy Gardner. I lost Guy. Guy was being changed and I was walking down the hall and Marty Pascoe was the head of special projects, and they were taking care of the Scooby-Doo books, and Bronwyn Taggart was the editor. Marty says, hey, you want to do a couple of Scooby-Doo issues? So I started working with Bronwyn, and I loved Bronwyn. She understood my humor. We hit it off, and everybody was kind of doing a Scooby-Doo issue here and there. Then she said, this is too much trouble. Why don't you just do the book? And that happened. So I wound up drawing Scooby-Doo for 13 years. Um, yeah, that's I, huge. I was uh, I was perfectly happy just with Scooby and the mystery machine and the whole thing. <laughs> yeah, because you can do cartoon. Yeah. And I guess that explains why you like Plastic Man and that he's kind of a mixture, but he's kind of a cartoon character at the same time as the superhero genre. So that's kind of an interesting. Plastic Man is, you know, it's kind of a basis for, for E-Man. So, you know, it, it all comes together. 
Yeah, because E-Man can manipulate his body and do all sorts of weird things with it as well. So that makes sense. That's a funny connection there. So then now you also did a crime strip called Femme Noir. What was that about? That was with Chris Mills, his own, own character. And our original idea with Femme Noir was that she was going to be a female version of the spirit. She wore a blue raincoat and an, another character in a hat, I like drawing hats. Chris was developing a whole city to surround her. And some of these were just very traditional pulp type horror. Well, actually, some of them was horror, some was science fiction, but it was was all in a crime tradition. Maybe one of these days we'll do some more memoir. really like that character. Mm -hmm. In 2011, you took over the art on the Dick Tracy strip. Was that a dream come true for you? It was one of those things that I'd always been wanting to do. I'd always tried out for Tracy. It, it just kind of fell into place because Mike Curtis and I are great Tracy fans. And at the time, it was kind of generally understood you could do like tribute versions of copyright characters and there'd be no trouble as long as you weren't really infringing. I've since learned this is not true. You can be sent away for doing this. And we, we were sending it to the Trib and the Trib was realizing that we were doing our own Dick Tracy strip online, just for fun. At that point, Dick Loker, who'd been doing the strip for a very long time, finally decided to retire. And they said, well, there are these guys who we should have sent to jail. Why don't we <laughs> just hire them? So that's, that's how that came. Now they ah. called, called Mike and says, you know, you, you guys want to take over the strip? And he says, well, I'll ask Joe. And yeah, we'll do it. So, have fun. Either people call out of the blue with things or things just fall into place. Things I, I try to do, you know, don't don't quite work. But things that just fall in, those will turn out pretty good. Yeah. So then did you go back and read some of the 1930s Chester Gould stuff as well? Or have you had you already done that? I'd read a lot of it. At this point, Mike has actually read all of it. But uh -huh. uh, the IDW reprints, they, they send them yeah. to the, the trim sends them to it. So we have... We have good reference. We can go checking back. We bring back a lot of the old characters, do a lot of our own, but a lot of the old characters. And yeah, so it's 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 a tradition. We're keeping it going. Mm -hmm. Oh, how fun. And you actually received Harvey Awards for Dick Tracy for three years, 2013, 2014, 2015. So you're receiving a lot of critical as well as fan praise. How does that feel? Were you surprised to get your first Harvey Award for that? What was your thinking on this? We were surprised. Yeah. Very, very pleased to see that something we'd always wanted to do as is being appreciated. So mm -hmm. we're surprised and we're very happy that it's getting a good reception. Yeah. I was looking at some of the, the free samples you're giving out at the convention and I was really impressed because it feels like it's continuing that Chester Gould vibe. So you're really kind of summoning this force here. So how long do you want to stay on the strip? It depends on the weekend. Sometimes I, I'll, I'll be around till Tracy's 100. Sometimes I figure I'll be around till the end of the week. I, I can't give you a definite answer there. Depends yeah. on how tired I am at the moment. Nice. It's a lot of work. Yeah, it's a lot of work for sure. All right, Jim. Okay, just a couple of random closing questions and things. I'm going to assume when I ask you who your favorite collaborator was that you're going to say your wife because the <laughs> two of you do comics together, things for the children's hospitals and things like that. Tell us about that a little bit because that's awesome. 
the Boston Children's Hospital. It turns out that the head of gastroenterology is a Scooby-Doo fan. His son was very young at the time, and he was buying him Scooby-Doo comics, and he sent a letter to, to D.C., Scooby fan uh, letter, and I sent him a drawing, and we talked a bit, compared notes, and as a comics fan, he had always wanted to use comics to explain diseases and dealing with hospitals and things like that. He realized when he found out that I could draw this, and my wife, Hillary, is a writer, he realized he'd found his team. Our first book was about Crohn's and colitis, and we dealt with the national group and went to camps for kids with the diseases and it did all kinds of research and it worked out well. We, we actually did a book about a little kid who has Crohn's and how he deals with the whole thing. And we did a couple more books after that. We're actually doing another one at the moment. It turned out well. You, you never know when you're going to find a comics fan in a useful position. You took a hiatus from Dick Tracy a couple of years ago. Was that when you were working on the Anne Rand Anthem book, or was that not connected? The Anne Rand was, was before that. Before that, okay. I took a... How did that come into being? That seems like an odd project for you. It is. I occasionally work with Charlie Santino, who's a packager and, and a writer, and, and it was Charlie, you know, put it all together. And I'm also a fan of Classics Illustrated. I, I really... I first did classics, I did Christmas Carol. And so it's not that I was that interested in this philosophy or anything, mm -hmm. but it was a book to be adapted to become a comic. That's how I got into it. Some of Ayn Rand's science in it needs to be explained. So Charlie did more designs of how the electrical stuff is actually done. So, oh, wow. So it's uh, it was fun. We did we did it as a a YA romance. It's about two cute kids who want to go out in the woods and start their own civilization. It was fun. I think it was definitely fun. And what did you do during your hiatus? Why did you take the time off from Tracy? Um, yeah. Well, occasionally I'll just want a break, and we'll get somebody to do a a minute mystery. Which there's a tradition of uh, short mysteries in the Dick Tracy comic books from from Harvey from the 50s and 60s. So uh, Rick Burchett did a really great one, Charles Ettinger. So it's fun to see how different people will handle Tracy without having to turn the strip over to somebody else. It, it, it gives a break, and, it, and it, it lets us see what other people would do. And Rick Burchett, he was an anchor for you when you first did the E-Man. That's right. Yeah, I, I remember that because he was a good match with you. Who, who were inkers that you thought that you enjoyed seeing their their inks on your work? Well, obviously Rick and uh, Bill Sinkiewicz, uh, Horacio Atlin, Bruce Patterson. I always liked Bruce's inks on on Green Lantern. Yeah, it's just been been several good ones. Joe, it's, for me, this has been a real pleasure. You're you're a favorite of mine, and I, I wanted to thank you. I'm going to turn you over to Alex to well, thank close you. out. Yeah, thanks so much, Joe. It, it seems from career, you've been a fan of comics from the beginning. You set out to do it. And and what it looks like is just through patience and, and hard work, you've managed to hit all sorts of aspects of the comic industry, hitting up all sorts of characters, creating new characters, co-creating new characters, even having production experience. You know, looking back, it's it's a huge career and we're excited to see more 
of your work. And it seems like sometimes some some artists they kind of peter out, but you just keep going. And I, I I'm just really impressed. You're just this really hardworking creative dynamo. Thanks so much for joining us today. Well, thank you. I, I appreciate it. 